Cause we got the alternative energy right. free autonomy And welcome to the Radioactive Show Produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne And heard nationally on the Community Radio Network Even to this day we have people promoting nuclear power as a solution to climate change And yet we've had uh, this massive ongoing epidemic of human illness and death in Europe and more recently the huge meltdown accidents in Fukushima. We've got Australia, the country that fueled Fukushima, now seeking to deliver uranium to Ukraine, the country that gave the world Chernobyl. There's so many examples of human failure and human fallibility in the running of... I can't believe how Mm. many mistakes and avoidable Mm. things happen Mm. with terrible consequences for Mm. the environment but also Mm. for people. Hello and welcome to The Radioactive Show. I'm Michaela. 30 years ago, on the 26th of April 1986, Reactor 4 at the Chernobyl nuclear plant in Ukraine ruptured and ignited, sending a massive plume of radiation into the atmosphere and spreading contamination across Europe, leaving extensive areas still contaminated today and an ongoing legacy of illness, death and displacement. Today we'll speak with Dr. Bill Williams from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War on the health impacts. Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation will look at the recently signed deal to sell Australian uranium to the Ukraine in light of the lessons of Chernobyl and the current conflicts in the region. And then we'll go to an excerpt of a conversation between two atomic photographers, Jesse Boylan and Marilyn Fairsky, who tells the story of how sites of nuclear disaster became a feature in her extensive body of work. First up, Dr. Bill Williams. I initially got involved because of concerns about uranium mining and uh, the nuclear arms race at the beginning of the 80s uh, and learned more and more about the health impacts of ionising radiation and particularly studying the controversy around the health impact of exposure to low levels of ionising radiation. So when the Chernobyl reactor exploded and dumped phenomenal quantities of radioactive material across the Northern Hemisphere, that um, spurred my interest at the time, I was actually working in London in one of the big obstetric hospitals, learning how to deliver babies. Uh, so that sort of ramped up the concern even further. Mm. And as we approach the 30th anniversary of Chernobyl, what are the health impacts at this point? Well, because of the... Um, extent of the, the radiation release into the stratosphere and the troposphere, the, the air above us, <clears throat> uh, it really was a huge amount of radioactivity. No one seems to be quite sure just how much this, you know, ongoing debate about the quantities of radiation, but certainly very large amounts of radioactive materials were deposited initially around the Chernobyl reactor in the Ukraine and a couple of the other surrounding Soviet states. And then as the wind moved back and forth, it 
continue to distribute radioactive material throughout uh, Europe and even essentially around the Northern Hemisphere in particular. And uh, initially, um, no one was really that sure what would happen. Uh, people who like nuclear power said nothing much would happen. People who hate nuclear power said all sorts of horrible things would happen. But over the ensuing years, it's become obvious that um, there have been significant serious health impacts. The first thing that actually happened, which was kind of a surprise to to everybody, I think, was that um, there were there was a ras- rapid escalation in the incidence of thyroid cancers in children, in particular, who were exposed to the to the radioactive iodine in the fallout. And so, since 1986, when the reactor first erupted, uh, there's been an estimated somewhere between probably six and eight thousand excess cancers of thyroid of uh, the thyroid in children. And that, that number is uh, expected to continue to grow over time, probably up to somewhere between fifteen and 20,000 cases are expected. Um, the thyroid gland is a little gland that's shaped like a butterfly in your neck that controls your metabolism. So it's very important. There have been quite a few deaths as a consequence of those thyroid cancers. Um, and obviously, you know, people having to live with a serious illness involving quite... Um, serious um, medical interventions to stop the cancer from killing them, basically. And then, of course, as time has passed, because of the nature of radiation and the impact it has on human health, there's been these growing numbers of people uh, demonstrating increased levels of other types of cancers, leukaemias and breast cancer. And in addition to that, um, strong evidence in some of the ex-Soviet states particularly of um, what we call non-cancer disease, so cardiac disease, respiratory disease, um, stroke-type illnesses, as well as lots of impacts on mental health. And uh, on top of that, uh, increasing evidence uh, around Europe of uh, impacts uh, which are attributable to damage to to the genome, so uh, increased numbers of birth defects, congenital malformations, and... um, Certainly, uh, changes in DNA patterns as we've, as we've become. I mean, molecular technologies have become much more um, clever since uh, in this 30-year period. So, we've been able to identify changes in chromosomes which are attributable to um, exposure to radiation over that time. I think the take-home messages about Chernobyl is that it's um, it's part of a, an industry which is not sustainable. Uh, it was heralded in the mid 20th century as you know, electricity that was too cheap to meter. And um, over time, you know, we've seen all sorts of things go wrong with the systems. Uh, and we, even to this day, we have people promoting it as a, a nuclear power as a solution to climate change. Um, and yet we've had uh, this massive ongoing epidemic of human illness and death in Europe. And more recently, the huge meltdown accidents in Fukushima, uh, in Japan, and the impact on people's well-being there. And for those sort of health reasons alone, I think it's a very strong argument that we should be um, moving away from nuclear power and replacing it with much safer technologies. I think that's probably the most important health method of all, really. Nuclear is a a dinosaur technology in a way, and the sooner we move out of it and on to a safer 
ways of producing electricity, uh, the better. This is the radioactive show heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. That was Dr. Bill Williams, and you can find out about the work of Medical Association for the Prevention of War at mapw.org.au. Next up, we speak with another longtime anti nuclear campaigner, Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation, and he'll talk to us about the newly signed deal to sell uranium to the Ukraine. But I started out by asking him to recall his memories of hearing about Chernobyl. 30 years ago this month. You must have been just getting involved in the anti-nuclear movement when Chernobyl happened. What do you remember from hearing about it at the time? I remember that. I remember that very well. I'd been early days involvement in anti-nuclear activity and and protests and blockades at um, Olympic Dam and, and the like. Um, it was also a time of big uh, peace marches and, and people for nuclear disarmament and calls for uh, uh, strong calls and public calls and manifestations for nuclear disarmament. Chernobyl came along and it was really um, a, a profound wake-up call of um, how serious this, in- this industry is and this sector is. And I remember thinking that, you know, we should not be fueling this stuff, we should not be providing this stuff at the time. And a couple of years later... Um, I, uh, I attended uh, a gathering of Friends of the Earth International Conference in uh, Krakow in Poland and it was the first time there had been an independent environmental non-government organisation summit, something that was driven by civil society rather than the government. And the stories that we heard there, often pretty surreptitiously in quiet meetings because there was a lot of observation and people didn't want to be seen, but the stories that we heard there from people about Chernobyl dislocation, impacts, forced relocation, about prisoners suddenly getting green food for the first time in years of sentences because um, the uh, authorities were were harvesting crops, broad green leaf crops that were highly contaminated and then not disposing of them but disposing of them via feeding them to people. Um, the stories from liquidators hundreds of thousands of Russian army conscripts that were moved in to physically do work. It was it was extraordinary. It was eye-opening, life-changing and deeply depressing. And, um, you know, those people have had a really profound impact and we should learn from that impact and we shouldn't replicate or in any way uh, airbrush the mistakes and, and the tragedies of the past and replicate them with the short-sightedness of today. Mm. Foreign Minister Julie Bishop has just signed a deal to sell Australian uranium to the Ukraine. Can you tell us a bit about how this all unfolded? Yeah, it's quite extraordinary, really. On on the 1st of April, April Fool's Day, um, uh, Julie Bishop announced that Australia would be um, supplying uranium and signing a uranium sales contract with um, the Ukraine. And um, it was extraordinary timing and an extraordinarily irresponsible agreement and approach. What's happened is uh, a couple of years ago, um, Tony Abbott um, w- uh, was Prime Minister and uh, and uh, met with uh, the Ukrainian um, leader, the Ukrainian President Poroshenko, and um, he, uh, at that time, uh, said that Australia would be looking to... Um, uh, advance uranium sales to the Ukraine. Um, there's been some backwards and forwards at a bureaucratic level uh, since, 
and then the announcement and the signing of a instrument of agreement um, in New York uh, on the 1st of April by the Foreign Minister. So we've got some real concerns with this. It's a, it's a risky deal and an irresponsible deal. This month is now 30 years since Chernobyl, um, and the massive uh, accident there and resultant contamination there um, still has profound impacts. There's, there's still today 5 million people living in highly contaminated areas because of that. Over 40% of the European landmass was affected in some way, and there's serious safety concerns. The world um, is spending, particularly European agencies, are spending serious effort, serious technical capacity and a lot of money on building a concrete enclosure of the failed reactor to try and reduce contamination and the risk of, of further uh, radioactive release from the site. There's massive um, containment, contamination issues and waste management issues at Chernobyl. So that was then, 30 years ago. That legacy and that cloud is literally still affecting and impacting on lives today. And the Ukrainian nuclear sector today um, doesn't seem to have learnt greatly from the lessons of Chernobyl. It has low governance. It has uh, poor performance. Uh, it, there are uh, routine outages and irregularities. There's uh, often breakdowns. There is uh, limited security. And very recently, the world's, uh, the G7, rather, the um, foreign minister met in Hiroshima and they spoke of increasing nuclear instability and insecurity around the world. And in that comment, high-level diplomatic comment, they made specific reference to that nuclear insecurity in relation to conflicts in Syria and to conflicts in Ukraine. So we've got... Australia, the country that fueled Fukushima, now seeking to deliver uranium to Ukraine, the country that gave the world Chernobyl, we have a whole series of long-standing and unresolved problems and deficiencies. We have a conflict on the ground that has led to the foreign ministers of the world's most powerful nations specifically citing that place as a reason for increased nuclear instability and insecurity. And we've got the Australian Foreign Minister, the Australian mining industry stepping in and saying, well, the best way to deal with all of this is to supply more uranium. It's deeply disturbing. It's deeply irresponsible. And um, it's something that uh, is certainly not in the interests of people or planet, um, certainly not in Australia's national interest. And it's put the interests of the mining sector ahead of uh, the interests of this country and far wider. Hmm. And uranium sales to Russia was allowed despite the Joint Standing Committee on Treaties recommendations otherwise, and they've now been suspended. What is the situation there? Yeah, there was one shipment. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. The Joint Standing Committee on Treaties, the, the federal parliament's body that uh, independently reviews and makes commentary on treaty actions and says whether or not they're in Australia's national interest and whether they, or not they should go ahead, uh, looked at the proposed Russian uranium sales deal and at that time it said, look, they shouldn't, this shouldn't go ahead until a whole set of preconditions about safety, security, governance, accountability, transparency, those sort of things which were really missing in the Russian sector were addressed. The, the government, the Australian government said, doesn't matter about that, we're going to advance it anyway. It signed a deal. It sent one uh, shipment of Australian uranium to 
Russia, and then um, uh, Russia um, became involved with increasing conflict and tension and armed uh, activity and uh, warfare with uh, Ukraine. And one of the Australian government responses, and we welcomed it at the time, um, was to suspend uh, Russian uranium sales. Those sales remain in suspension. Our argument is that if you suspend uh, uh, sales to one side in a conflict because the conflict is causing insecurity, it makes no sense whatsoever to then turn around and start sales to another side in the conflict. And this is particularly concerning because uh, that statement from the G7 foreign ministers about Ukrainian insecurity has a basis, a disturbing basis, in fact, in literal um, hobnail boots on the ground. There have been armed in- incursions of uh, pro-Russian separatists and fighters into Ukrainian nuclear facilities um, in in recent months. So we have significant problems on with infrastructure, massive deficiencies with governance and independence, and we have a conflict on the ground an ageing fleet that's underperforming, and all this is against the unspoken elephant in the room, which is the continuing contamination, environmental and human impact of Chernobyl. So to add literal fuel into that deeply unstable situation is profoundly irresponsible on the part of the Australian Government. That was Dave Sweeney from the Australian Conservation Foundation and you can follow him on Twitter at Nuke Dave Sweeney. You're listening to the Radioactive Show broadcast all around the country thanks to the Community Radio Network. Now I'll present an excerpt of an interview with the artist Marilyn Fairsky and this was recorded by Jesse Boylan. Marilyn Fairsky's photographic and video practice explores notions of time, identity and place and we'll hear how a visit to Chernobyl in 2009 profoundly impacted on her. She was visiting Crimea working on a series of photos around bodies of water and with a few days free in Kiev decided to visit the nearby Chernobyl to take a photograph of the entombed reactor. It was intended to be a part of another series she was making on tombs but we'll hear how the experience ultimately led to the creation of various bodies of works focused on nuclear sites, including a film, Precarious, about Chernobyl. For me, it was a remarkable and unexpected experience because not only did I get the shot that I'd imagined getting but didn't know how I would, um, but it was a shot from right in the middle of the exclusion zone in Pripyat, on the seventh floor um, of this hotel, but the guard, the guide I had, because you pick up an official guide once you get in, and the driver, they took me everywhere I wanted to go, and because there wasn't anybody else there, I had completely unfettered access. I got all the shots I wanted to get, mm-hmm. and that I didn't even know I wanted to get. <laughs> And But there was one particular experience that I'll tell you about that was like the turning point for me. Cause, so all of this, up until this point, I was, you know, madly stimulated and visually excited and all of that, but had no idea what I would do or even wanted to do with any of it, apart from I'd got my shot that I thought I'd use for something else. But... 
Then they took me and dropped me and all my gear in the middle of the playground in Pripyat. And it's been the scene of many, many photographs, the Ferris wheel that was never mm-hmm. used. And, but as I said, there was nobody there. Middle of winter, snow was falling. Uh, it was very thick on the ground and they went off in the car you know, for a mile or so away and out of sight. I'm standing there in the middle of this playground and there's this strange thick silence because of the snow and the fact that apart from them and me, there was no one within 30 or 40 square K around the place. And I had this real panic attack, a momentary panic attack. What if they don't come back and get me? How will I find my way out? And I had no idea where they'd gone. But then... I suddenly had this feeling, this very strong feeling that this would is what it would be like after the end of the world or, you know, after a major... Well, it was what it was like after a major nuclear accident, mm. but very much I had this sense, this is like being after the end of the world. And it was a transformative mm. experience and I had no interest really, mm. accepting an opportunistic interest. Mm. Oh, I'm going to Kiev, so I'll go to Chernobyl. Mm. But I became utterly sort of hijacked. My interest became hijacked just by all the possibilities around that this site suggested to me. And the more I saw that day, the more I found out through the research that I then undertook, I got really interested in, compellingly interested in the question of waste because um, Chernobyl, the Reactor 4, it's got this giant, what they call the elephant's foot, of hundreds of tonnes of molten or solidified molten waste that they're now you know, building the new containment over. But it somehow, it just, the more I found out, the more I realised this place really exemplified um, not only all the threads and connections between the political mm. and the nuclear fuel cycle, mm. um, but the connections uh, to so many other sites, so many other places, and also the ways in which very ordinary people had absolutely no say mm. or no possibility of having a say over what was happening. And so... Anyway, it just sort of got me thinking about a lot of this stuff that I hadn't really thought about. And it led you as an artist to explore other nuclear sites yeah. and Yeah. But always questioning something larger yeah. than the site itself. Yeah. I was wondering if we could talk about that a little bit. I, I've I've come to understand that my interest is not so much in the literal what is literally visible, but the way in which these sites are situated and the interconnections and the relationships that they might have with the surrounding landscape, with surrounding communities of people, not that I necessarily depict those things literally, although I have often used the voices of people from surrounding communities, but it's the suggestibility of these places, the things that they propose for me to consider or reflect on about the longevity of radiation compared to the brevity of human life. And that, to me, is really the, the driving 
the, 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 the sights are the visual drivers, but it's that, that other thing I've just talked about is the emotional driver for me. And to cons- it really makes me consider, and I hope my work in some way um, generates this sort of space for other people to reflect on the vulnerability mm. of people and also the way in which um, corporations and governments um, often manipulate the, the just very ordinary sort of the very ordinary details of people's lives in terms of the larger narratives that they're interested in promoting. You know, I mean, the whole nuclear industry is a, is a prop. The nuclear energy industry is a prop for nuclear defence mm. and nuclear research into nuclear weaponry. Mm. I mean, I've come to really understand that. Mm. And also the way in which the question of waste, you know, this legacy for the future, mm. and every site I go to, there's so many examples of human failure and human fallibility in the running of I can't believe how mm. many mistakes and avoidable mm. things happen mm. with terrible consequences for mm. the environment but also mm. for people. And, of course, my work can't tell all of that, but they're the things that compel me in a way to keep visiting these sites and keep mining them Mm. for connections and threads and I suppose to try and work it out in some way through through images through experience spatial experiences um, not in a way that's telling people what to think but in a way that's creating spaces to think Mm. I'd certainly yeah, have my own yeah, yeah. Perspective, view, yeah. uh, perspective, and that clearly influences the mm. sites I choose to go to. I mean, I think I'm really interested in key sites, like I've been to the Polygon in Kazakhstan, which is where the Soviet Union, in response mm. to um, the development of the atomic of the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they felt they had to get their own bomb. You know, it's this whole cycle of. X mm. does this, then Y does that, mm. and next thing you know, Britain's got to get its bomb. Next thing you know, there are tests at Maralinga and in Australia. Australia was hoping to get the bomb. Australia mm. was hoping to get the yeah. bomb, and it's just never ending. Mm. Mm, exactly. And I guess um, there must be a um, desire for a response to your work, otherwise it would just be solely for yourself. Like you were talking about before, a lot of your motivation is about how how you respond to sites and what it does to you. Mm. But it must also be an outward thing for other people to respond yeah. to as well. Otherwise, yeah. Otherwise yeah. you wouldn't exhibit you wouldn't work and yeah. you wouldn't show it. Mm. And, and also I think particularly now where Australia's sort of having all these dis- the in- Royal Commission into the nuclear fuel cycle and also all these discussions about whether Australia should be the waste nuclear waste dump for the rest of the world mm. and the you know the willy-nilly picking of potential sites mm. and I think now it's even more important to to contribute to the public conversations to however however individualised your own way of doing it might be Mm. but to take part in those conversations because it has consequences for everybody. (laughs) 
That was Marilyn Fairsky, interviewed by Radioactive Show presenter and Atomic Photographers Guild member Jesse Boylan. And you can find out more about Marilyn's film at precarious.com.au and other nuclear-focused projects can be found at plusandminus.net. I'll include an extended version of the interview in the podcast of this show and that can be found at 3cr.org.au backslash radioactive alongside podcasts of previous shows. You've been listening to The Radioactive Show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on Wurundjeri Country, Fitzroy, Victoria, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Thanks so much to Dr. Bill Williams, Dave Sweeney, Jesse Boylan, and Marilyn Fairsky. I hope you've enjoyed today's show, and if you'd like to get in contact, you can email us at radioactive.3cr at gmail.com or check out our Facebook page and I'll be posting links to what we've talked about today and events around the Chernobyl anniversary, reflecting on nuclear disasters and how we can use that knowledge to build momentum for a nuclear-free future.